0: Tonight we're going to kind of begin, last week we kind of informally begun a uh, series in Isaiah. Tonight going to be more the official beginning of it. And so uh, some of the things that I'll say tonight might be a little bit repeat from last week, but I don't want to try to cover too much of the same ground. So some of this will be new, some of it will be a little bit of review from last week. But my goal tonight is just to kind of lay a groundwork for launching into the study of Isaiah And so we'll look at just some introductory things, uh, such as uh, we'll look at Isaiah the man, who he was as a person, his family. And then uh, we'll also look at the times, just the situation, things that were going on in the world and in Judah at that time. And then one of the critical issues when it comes to the prophecy of Isaiah is the authorship of Isaiah and when it was written. Isaiah is one of the books in the Old Testament that more critical scholars like to attack and like to try to make the case that Isaiah is not the only author of the book. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. And then just when it was that Isaiah had his ministry. And then toward the end, we'll just try to draw some themes that are kind of recurring overriding themes that pop up over and over again throughout the whole message of Isaiah. And that will help us, I think, to kind of give us kind of a uh, a preview of what's to come so we can watch for these themes as they pop up in different places in Isaiah. So let's talk about Isaiah the man just for a moment. His name means Yahweh saves. And if you look at the end of Isaiah, you see the Yah right there at the end of his name. That is a shortened form of Yahweh. And so in the Old Testament, anytime that you see a biblical name end in like I A H, like that, or perhaps Y A H, Yah, ya, that is intentionally a name that is connected to the name of Yahweh, the name of God. And so, for example, Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And so here, the, the Lord Yahweh saves. And it's very closely related to the name Joshua in the Old Testament, as well as Hosea, as well as Jesus in the New Testament. And so all of those names are built around the same roots, same root ideas of Yahweh saves. We don't know a whole lot about Isaiah's family. The, the first verse of the book tells us that he's the son of Amos which doesn't really get us very far down the road because we don't know hardly anything about Amos either. But some have suggested, and this comes from rabbinic tradition, so the rabbis, they pass pass on tradition from generation to generation. And according to rabbinic tradition, Isaiah came out of a royal lineage. Some have suggested that he may have even been the cousin of King Uzziah which is uh, when he began his ministry, when Uzziah was king. So some of that comes from tradition. We don't, we don't know that for sure, and it's not stated as such in Scripture, but that's been one suggestion. And may account for why he was able to have great access to kings as, as, he, ha- as he had, being able to go into the, the presence of kings and deliver his messages. And also might account for just the, his learning and education and his growing up and his background. So some have suggested that he came out of a royal lineage. His death, again, is not really discussed much in Scripture. But again, tradition has it that he died a martyr's death. And tradition has it that he was put to death during the reign of Manasseh. And Manasseh was a very wicked king. And we'll briefly discuss him in a moment. But Manasseh was a very wicked king, and tradition has it that he was placed— don't get grossed out here— but Isaiah was placed between two boards and saw sawed in half. And that tradition perhaps is the root of Hebrews 11 when the writer of Hebrews 11 says, and some were sawn asunder. And that tradition may be behind that that reference in Isaiah chapter 11, but he, he died as a martyr and Jesus refers to this when he comes in his ministry, when he's rebuking the Pharisees and he say, and he says to them, which of the prophets did you not kill talking about how basically the ancestors of the Pharisees rejected God's prophets going back centuries and many of God's faithful prophets met a martyr's death. And many think that Isaiah did as well. Um Isaiah had a wife she 's not named in the book, but according to chapter eight, verse three, she is designated as a prophetess, and Isaiah had at least one son, possibly two sons through this wife who is who is called a prophetess in chapter eight verse three but that's that's about it as far as what we know about isaiah 's life and family in terms of his times isaiah one one says that he ministered during the reigns of King Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah who were kings of Judah. And so just a little bit about each of those kings and their reigns to help us get a historical context to what was going on. And so Uzziah, you can read about him in 2nd Kings 15 as well as in 2nd Chronicles chapter 26. And uh, we, we read through Second Chronicles 26 last week and looked at the reign and uh, the final days of Uzziah. But he was king from 792 to 740 BC. And he's also known as Azariah. And when you're reading scripture, this can be confusing because I believe it's Kings refers to him as Azariah, but Chronicles refers to him as Uzziah. And so, but they're the same person. Two different names that he goes by, but the same person. And the Bible characterizes him as a good king, as a righteous king, who tried to walk in the ways of the Lord and in the pattern of King David of Judah. He became king at 16 years old and reigned for 52 years. Last week in Second Chronicles 26, we saw that, that much of Uzziah's life and his, his reign as king was characterized by success. And blessing. He had success over the Philistines in extending Israel's power or Judah's power and their territory. But toward the end of his life, Uzziah did something incredibly prideful and wicked. He went into the temple of the Lord and he offered incense uh, at the the altar in the temple, which was not a a job that, that kings were supposed to do. That's reserved for the priest. But Uzziah was, was prideful, and he, and he basically usurped his position as king, his authority, and offered this incense. And the Bible says that the high priest, along with other priests, came in and confronted King Uzziah and told him, you should not be doing this. And Uzziah basically had them thrown out. And again, showing his pride and arrogance. And so at that moment, God struck Uzziah with leprosy. And for the rest of his life, he lived as a leper, away from his family in isolation. And uh, last week I said we weren't sure how much, how long that was, but then I read this week that that was 11 years. So he spent the last 11 years as a leper before he died. And then after him came Jotham. And Jotham, his son, is talked about in 2 Kings 15 and 2 Chronicles 27. He reigned from 750 to 732 B.C. And if you notice the overlap there. So Uzziah goes to about 740, but Jotham begins about 750, 10 years or so before his father's death. And that's because he basically became co-king, co-reigning with his father while his father was in isolation until his father died of leprosy. And so Jotham basically was a a co-regent with his father for about 10 or 11 years. And then he reigned uh, through 732 BC. And like his father, he is described as a good king and sought to bring about some significant reforms and move Judah towards faithfulness to the Lord. Like his father, who extended power over the Philistines, Jotham extended power over the Ammonites and made them servants and collected taxes and tribute from them. And it was right around this time that in during Jotham's reign that Israel, the northern kingdom and Syria were beginning to form an alliance together. And Israel and Syria were starting to put pressure on Judah in the south to join their alliance against Assyria in the north. Assyria is the world power at this time. So think of Nineveh and the wicked city of, of Nineveh. And then, so you've got Assyria starting to grow and become a world power. And essentially, Israel and Syria were under the control of Assyria. And so they formed an alliance wanting to push back against Assyria. And they wanted Judah to join this alliance. And so they started putting pressure on Jotham to join this alliance, but Jotham did not. And he did not because one of the reasons is because Israel had departed from the line of David and they were a wicked monarchy. Every king in the line of Israel in the northern kingdom was wicked. And so Jotham did not bow to that pressure to join that alliance. So then came along his son, Ahaz, and unfortunately Ahaz was a very wicked king. So Ahaz was evil, he was idolatrous, and you can see him in 2 Kings 16, 2 Chronicles 28. He reigned from 732 to 715 BC, and he was an idolater. And some of the things that that Kings and Chronicles describe about him is that he instituted Baal worship in Judah, which if you remember, Baal, or Baal, was the god... Of the Canaanites. It's the primary God of the Canaanites. And it was basically the the main God of Israel. So Israel, in departing from the line of David, splitting off from the Davidic kingdom, Israel went its own way and essentially fell into Baal worship. Well, here is Ahaz now, who's a, a king of Judah, supposed to be following the word of the Lord. But he starts to bow to this pressure of Baal worship and idolatry. And so he introduced it all throughout Judah and introduced child sacrifice into Judah. There was a place just outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom, where as a part of this wicked pagan cult, they would offer child sacrifices. Ahaz is king during this time. And so he did not receive God's blessing. God punished him during this time. And so God sent all kinds of pressure against him from the Edomites, from the Philistines, and they, put, they, they attacked and raided Judah all throughout Ahaz's reign. And then that pressure that I mentioned from Israel and Syria, that pressure started to mount and grow even more. And, and so Ahaz was faced with a choice. Basically, he either had to join Israel-Syria... And go join their alliance, or he needed to trust God. trust that God would protect Judah, his people. Well, the problem is is that he basically did neither one of those things and essentially did an end around around Israel and Syria, their alliance, and Judah, Ahaz in the south and Judas went to us Syria to the main power at the time and said, we want your protection. Well, Assyria said, sure, you can have my protection. And Assyria swept down, overran Israel and Syria and made Judah a vassal state and made it start to pay tribute and taxes. So that's the lesson. When you put your trust in princes, when you put your trust in human Kings, and basically it came back to where now they're enslaved under the power of assyria but essentially god had to to step in and protect judah from being totally overrun by the assyrians they became a vassal state had to pay tribute but at least they're still their own their own place and then you have after ahaz you have hezekiah and it's almost like huge pendulum swings in judah because you have ahaz who's incredibly wicked and then you have hezekiah who swings back to the word of the Lord again. And so Hezekiah tries to do what's right. 2 Kings 18, 2 Chronicles 29. He reigned from 729 to 686 BC. So he was a good king. He removed idolatry from the land. He cleansed the temple. He reconsecrated the people to serve God. He reinstituted regular offerings and sacrifices and reinstituted the offerings of the people to support the Levites and the priests. And so he made many, many very good reforms to bring Judah back into line with the Word of God. Also, it was during his reign that the northern kingdom completely fell to Assyria in 722 BC, and they were deported. Assyria had a policy, like many lands in the ancient Near East, where when they came in and took over your country they moved you out and they moved their people in and in a way to basically totally erase your memory erase your identity and reacclimate you to other places in in their territory and so that's what assyria did to the northern kingdom and scattered them across assyria they became exiles and that happened during hezekiah's reign One of the things that Hezekiah did that was foolish is that, you know, I mentioned in the last time that under Ahaz, Assyria had made Judah a vassal state where it had to pay tribute. Well, King Hezekiah, he was doing what was right, and I think there was a point in his reign that he basically presumed upon the Lord that the Lord would protect him, whatever decision he made, and he kind of presumed and rebelled against King Sennacherib of, of Assyria and basically saying, we're not going to pay you taxes anymore. We're not going to pay you tribute. And so here comes King Sennacherib from the north coming to attack him and Hezekiah tries to make things right. He tries to renegotiate with the Assyrians and make things right again. But the king of Assyria doesn't want to hear it. He's, he's out for bloodshed. He comes all the way to Jerusalem and God intervenes. And God afflicts the army of King Sennacherib of Assyria with a plague and wipes them out. And he has to retreat and go back home. And so that took place toward the end of Hezekiah's reign. And so the Lord delivered him from that foolish choice. So Ahaz was evil. Hezekiah was good. Again, we swing back the other way with Manasseh. And Manasseh, 2 Kings 21 and 2 Chronicles 33, he was king from 696 to 642 BC, and he was an incredibly evil king. Evil, idolatrous, totally undid all of the spiritual reforms and advances that Hezekiah had made, and reinstituted Baal worship, false altars, Put in the temple complex in Jerusalem, and tradition has it that he was the one that put Isaiah to death as a martyr. And basically, when after after Manasseh came to the throne, the the trajectory of Judah from that point forward is downhill quickly. And there were there were a couple of times here and there where there were some kings who tried to. Do what was right but the damage had already been done and it was quickly moving toward God's chastening hand coming on the land of Judah and so Manasseh instituted some some evil practices that were never reversed uh, once he became once he came on the throne and so that kind of gives you uh, that's a lot that happens isn't it during Isaiah's reign so or during Isaiah's ministry so when it says he ministered during the reign of Uzziah and Jotham. And Ahaz and Hezekiah, that's a long time. And a lot of stuff is happening, both good and bad, during that time in Judah. Now, I mentioned that one of the issues with Isaiah is the authorship and the date. And the traditional view, one that probably we all know and we all believe, is that there's one Isaiah and he wrote the whole book. And he is responsible for the whole book and everything that is described in the book. And he lived in the latter part of the 8th century B.C. So his ministry was about 740 to 690 B.C. And so Isaiah is responsible for the book. But during the 19th century, the 1800s, all kinds of critical views began to crop up about Scripture. And especially attacking the authorship of Scripture attacking the unity of the books of the Bible. And one of the things that critics love to do in the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is they like to take a book of the Bible and they like to dissect it and say, okay, this part right here, well, that sounds like this part over here. And so that must have come from one author. And this chapter sounds like this chapter over here. It's got some similar wording. It must have come from a different author. And then this portion over here deals with a later time that had to come from a different author. And they they love to do that with every book of the Bible. And so you have them denying that Moses wrote the Pentateuch and ascribing three or four different sources to the Pentateuch. You have them coming up with different authors for Isaiah. And basically the critical view that became popular at the end of the 1800s and well into the 1900s was that there were three Isaiahs or at least three people who wrote or were responsible for the content of the book of Isaiah. And so that became the critical view. The critical view is multiple authors that it was composed over a long span of time. And one of the reasons that they like to say that is because they point to what is a pretty noticeable shift in time horizon, or time focus, after chapter 39, and then into chapter 40 of Isaiah. And so many of these critical scholars said, well, because of just the the vast difference of time horizon, we've got to be talking about at least two different authors here, maybe three. And so they would say the the Isaiah of Jerusalem, he was responsible for the first part of the book, maybe chapters 1 through 39. But They would say somebody later, somebody much later, maybe 100, 150 years after Isaiah had to be responsible for the rest of the book because the stuff that he talks about in the second half of the book, that stuff didn't happen while Isaiah was alive. And Isaiah predicts it with incredible specifics. There's no way that that could happen. And so that had to come from somebody way later after Isaiah's time. And so, for example, they would point to the fall of Judah into Babylon, into captivity. They would point to the exile for 70 years in Babylon. They would point to the fact that Isaiah mentions Judah coming home from exile, going back to Judah and Jerusalem, and that the person who allowed this to happen was Cyrus of Persia. So Isaiah specifically mentioned Cyrus of Persia, Cyrus lived after Isaiah was dead a hundred years. So they would say, there's no way Isaiah can do that. This has to be from somebody else. Basically denying that any true foretelling prophecy could happen. And so that's the critical view. Well, so what are the arguments that this critical view brings? Well, basically the, the three things that they bring as arguments for wanting to split Isaiah up are one, the literary style, they say that some of the vocabulary and language changes once you get to chapter 40. They'll point to the different time horizon. So whereas chapter 1 through 39 seems to deal more with Judah at the time that Isaiah was alive and things that were going on then, chapter 40 through 66 seems to be dealing with things after Isaiah was dead. And so there's two different time horizons. They say that means there had to be at least two different authors. And then also the third element is just the incredible specificity of the prophecies that are found in the last part of Isaiah. They say that could never happen. So those are their three basic arguments. Well, what are the arguments for the traditional view that Isaiah wrote the whole thing? Well, one, that's what it says in Isaiah one, one. So If we take the Isaiah 1-1 at face value, it says that this is the vision of Isaiah. And nowhere else in the entire book of Isaiah is there ever anyone else introduced to say that this is his vision or this is his message that he received from the Lord. The whole thing is ascribed to Isaiah the prophet. And in the early parts of Isaiah, it says that this was specifically a vision from God that he, re- he received. So we're talking about divine revelation being revealed from God to Isaiah. So Isaiah makes that claim. Also, when you go to the New Testament, do you know how they refer to Isaiah? They refer to it as Isaiah, all as a unified composition by one prophet, Isaiah. So when Jesus or Paul or the other apostles, when they refer to Isaiah, they refer to one man who wrote the book of Isaiah. And I think another argument in favor of the traditional view is that there are actually quite a few words and phrases and themes that are found all throughout the whole book that are very similar. So, Whereas you would think that if different people wrote different sections, that you wouldn't find the kind of similarity of themes and language that we find in Isaiah. So, for example, we can find something mentioned in chapter 11 of Isaiah that also shows up very strongly again later on in chapter 40 forward. Certain themes, catchwords, phrases, they're found all the way throughout the book. And so that that seems to point towards its unity. The other thing that I would say is is an argument for the unity of Isaiah is never, ever have we ever found any document or copy of Isaiah where it wasn't the whole. So going back all the way to Dead Sea Scrolls, every manuscript that that we've ever found of Isaiah is the whole thing. Now, Granted, there are some documents that are like partial, but that's because they've worn away. But whenever we have the whole thing, it's always the whole thing. In other words, we don't have like second Isaiah over here and third Isaiah over here split off from first Isaiah. It's always a unified composition. And if you think about it, the shift in time frame that happens between chapter 39 and chapter 40, that could happen if Isaiah is writing some parts earlier in his ministry and some parts later in his ministry. That can easily happen. Uh, When Isaiah, earlier in his ministry, he's focused on these events and these oracles from God. But later on in his ministry, God gives him new visions that deal with other times and other issues. And so we could expect that that could happen, different time horizons, by the same person. Because there's a gap in time of when he wrote those things, but still the same author. And I would say that the precise prophetic details that we see later on in the, in the last part of Isaiah, that should not be an obstacle for Bible believers who believe in the God who knows everything. In a God who can tell the end from the beginning, and by the way, that's a quote from Isaiah, the God who can tell the end from the beginning, things that have not yet come to pass, that that should not surprise us that Isaiah can look forward 100, 150 years and tell us that the exiles of Judah are going to go home. And that Cyrus, the Persian, is God is going to raise him up to allow his people to go home. That shouldn't surprise us. One author was very insightful in saying that if, if we have a problem with Isaiah predicting Cyrus, then what do we do with all the messianic prophecies in Isaiah? Because Cyrus was only 100, 150 years after Isaiah. Well, what about the Christ, the Messiah? He was 700 years after Isaiah. Isaiah. So if we're going to say there's no way Isaiah could predict Cyrus, well then we're basically then saying we also have to strip out all the messianic prophecies out of Isaiah as well. So for, for those who believe the Bible, believe that God can inspire and reveal his word to his prophets, specific detailed prophecy of the future shouldn't be a problem for us. And really is not an argument against the genuine authorship of Isaiah. So I would say the one Isaiah wrote the book and he wrote it probably toward the end of the 8th century, maybe around 700, close to the end of his life. But I believe it all comes from the same prophet and that God can and does reveal his will, his future will to his prophets. So when did Isaiah minister then? Most scholars believe that Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 is the call of Isaiah. And so Isaiah 6 says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Notice the time mark there, the year that King Uzziah died. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings, with two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of Of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And so Isaiah responded to the call of God at that point in his ministry. And so if that's the beginning of his prophetic ministry, then that was about 642, 640, or I'm sorry, 7. 742-740 BC, somewhere in that neighborhood when King Uzziah died. And then if he had his ministry then all the way till the time of Messiah, of Manasseh, who put him to death, then we're looking at a ministry probably of about 50 years from 740 to 690, roughly. What about Isaiah's message? Well, Isaiah's message deals with forth And foretelling is to be distinguished from foretelling in this way. In that sometimes when we think of the prophets, we think of prophets as only predictors of the future. While there is elements of prediction in Isaiah, and I have no problem with elements of prediction in Isaiah, we also have to look at the fact that many of the prophets were preachers. And they were dealing with issues that were going on in their day. And so forth telling is the idea of taking the word of God, especially the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy, taking the books of Moses, applying the law of God to the situation of his day and saying, people of Judah, here's where you've gone wrong. People of Judah, here's where you've rebelled against the Lord. And here's what the word of the Lord says, therefore, repent and, and turn back to the Lord. And, and so that's much of the ministry of the prophets. And also with warnings, if you don't turn back to the Lord, then the Lord's chastening hand will come upon you. And so that's that's forth telling, seeking to call the people back to the covenant. Uh, one book that I read described the prophets as covenant enforcement mediators. They were basically taking the covenant that God made with Israel, with Moses on Mount Sinai, and they were taking that covenant and seeking to bring that covenant to bear on the people of their day and say, this is how you should live in obedience and faithfulness to the covenant of God. Covenant enforcement mediator. So they were foretellers, but they were also foretellers. And often their foretelling had to do with the chastening hand of God that was to come if they did not repent and, and turn back to the Lord. And so the prophets would warn them about judgments that would come. That was future, but not only judgments, but also times of blessing and restoration and salvation. And so we'll see in Isaiah that, that Isaiah predicts times of difficulty and judgment of God, but also that God is a God of mercy and long suffering who will restore his people. So, forth forth telling and foretelling. One of the things we'll see in Isaiah 2 is that there is a focus on Judah. Not that Isaiah doesn't talk about other things going on around, but his primary focus is on the people of Judah. So the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, under the Davidic king in the dynasty of David, the ones who are supposed to be following the word of the Lord. His ministry is focused on on them, but he does have also a global scope. and in fact, there's a section in Isaiah in the first in the, kind of in the middle of the first part of Isaiah where they're basically oracles to the nations. and Isaiah has a word of judgment from the Lord for each of several different nations around Judah at that time. So there is a global focus. And even toward the end of Isaiah, when when Isaiah is predicting a time of blessing and restoration after the exile, he extends that time of blessing and restoration beyond just the Jews and says that the Gentiles as well will be able to come in and find peace and shade under the tree, if you will, of God's blessing on Israel. So focused on Judah, but global in scope. I'm going to stop there. I actually had some other things that I wanted to talk about uh, tonight, but this is a good place to stop because that's a whole nother part of the summary. The other thing that I wanted to talk about was kind of like just uh, the, some of the themes of Isaiah, but I don't want to do that in five minutes. So I think I'll just wait and we'll look at that next time. Do y'all have any questions, any thoughts? Um, I know some of this was, historical background information, but I think it's helpful, especially with the prophets, if you have an idea of what's going on in history at that time, because much of what they say specifically has to do with their situation. So, so God is speaking his word through his prophet into the lives and the historical context, into the situation of his people at, at that time. And so in a way to understand Isaiah or Jeremiah or Jonah, some of these other prophets, you have to know a little bit of the history of what's going on at the time. Uh, Why God is angry with his people. What are some of the, the pressures that his people are facing from enemies around them? Are they in obedience to the covenant or disobedience to the covenant? Who's their king? Is he a good king or a wicked king? All those things factor in when you're trying to understand the messages of the prophets. So I hope this is helpful to you. Do you all have any thoughts or comments or questions or anything? You mentioned that his vocabulary or way of writing changed to possibly two or three times. Do you think his education level now has been growing? Yeah, I mean, definitely I think that, that as, you, as you grow and learn more, he could mature. And, and I think like when some of the critical scholars try to to point out the differences that they see in literary style, I think they make too much of them, too much of those differences and try to try to build a case on that. That's kind of flimsy in my opinion, because you could do the same thing with a modern author. If you took a modern author who wrote a book in 2000, and then you looked at a book that he wrote in 2018, same author, but, you know, perhaps a different purpose he's writing that book for. Hopefully he's grown as a writer in 18 years. You know, so even on a very human level, we can see that an author can grow and change over a period of time. And, and the thing is, with, with God's inspiration of the prophets, he is, his inspiration is not just a mere dictation. Like, like the prophets or the apostles were just secretaries sitting at a typewriter. That's not how inspiration worked, because inspiration worked through not just the ears and the the pen of the authors, but it worked through their whole lives. Their whole lives were a conduit of of God's word so that you can have Moses in preparation in Egypt, in in Pharaoh's house. And that's God's preparation of the conduit that he's going to use to channel his word through. And so... Yeah, exactly. So and that's a good point too, is that not only maybe is Isaiah developing in his maturity, but then you also have you could account for a shift in in literary style to the shift in the change of topic. Right? So so if here you're mostly focusing on what's going on with Judah at your time, but then your horizon shifts and God gives you a vision for the future. Your, your literary style is probably going to change there as well. And like you say, there's a lot of Messianic prophecy in the latter part of the book. Uh, probably one of the greatest Messianic chapters in all the Bible, Isaiah 53, is in that latter part of Isaiah. So, so I think there are many reasons why you could see some of those shifts in style that could account for those differences while still being the same author. But those are both great points, really great points.